maker of the heavens knows my name. The author of the oceans gives me grace. I just want you to remember that phrase when we go through our time together in the next few minutes and we talk about uh, the whole idea of standing strong today in humility as we continue our series. And we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 today. And I'm just going to jump right in because I've got a lot to cover and I have a limited amount of time, and I know you do as well. So I just need you to know, though, right up front as I jump into this, is that as I began working on my message this week, that it really ambushed me. I just really didn't expect to have it to have the impact in me that it did. I would just realize that I'm talking about humility today. I really didn't think, and I really didn't understand how full of pride that I actually am. You may already know that, okay? But I didn't. I just didn't realize it. And uh, God's just worked in my heart, and it's tenderized me, and it's uh, actually been incredibly difficult at times to uh, look at myself. But I'm just praying today that there might be a similar response in all of us, that would be open to uh, hearing. Because when we started talking about humility, I thought, well, let's just talk about that. And then he said, no, in order to talk about humility, you have to talk about the opposite. You have to talk about pride. And that's the character we're looking at today. We're going to talk about his pride. Now, pride, according to C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, and it's one of the books I want to recommend today that you pick up, uh, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I don't think we have it in our bookstore, but we might. But uh, you can order this easily, or you can just download it on your device and listen to it. Uh, I love listening to it. But there's a chapter in there in the middle of this. It's called The Great Sin. Many of you may have read that or be familiar with it, and it's all about the sin of pride. And he talks about the fact that pride is the root of all sin. It's the source of sin. Uh, We know from reading scripture that Satan was thrown out of heaven in his revolt because of pride. We know that Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden because of pride. They wanted to be like God. Pride leads to wars, it leads to conflicts, it leads to self-admiration, it leads to self-worship, it leads to contempt, it leads to anger, bigotry, judgmentalism, intolerance, injustice, discrimination, idolatry, hatred, unhealthy competition, and comparison. So those are all the things that pride leads to as we do it in life. Now, there is a good pride, right? There's a good pride, so we just want to acknowledge that, just right up front, that there is a good pride. It's okay to feel proud of my accomplishments. It's okay to feel confident in my abilities. It's okay to find joy and satisfaction in my successes. It's okay to feel pride in my family. It's okay to be, be proud of my church and my work. But most of the time, when the Bible references pride, you could replace it with the word arrogance. Arrogance. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at arrogant pride and how God would want us to put that aside and he would want us us to stand strong and embrace humility. So go ahead and grab your message notes, look like this, and pull them out. And we're going to be, you know, all the verses, most of the verses I'm going to use will be here today. And you're some blanks you can fill in. I know that you're going to wish you had more space to write. I'm sorry about that. You might look in the middle and see in the homework section. Yeah, there's some space there too. As, as you write today, because I think there's going to be a lot that you're going to want to take notes about today. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open it to Daniel chapter 4. I just want to encourage you to bring your Bible every week. And while you're here, that you might even, you know, doodle in it, write some notes in it, something that God speaks to you. If you don't have a Bible,
Bible when you come in. Grab one at the doors. And if you do own a Bible, leave it there. If you don't own a Bible, we just love to give you one as a gift. So take it with you today even as our gift uh, to you. So the theme of, the Dan- of Daniel uh, chapter 4 uh, could be summarized in the statement at the top of your notes. It says this, the most important discovery in life is that I am not God. I am not God. The most important discovery in life. You're not God. I'm not God. Okay, so we don't get that straight right up front. A man by the name of Ernest Kurtz wrote a book that has become really the definitive history of the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step recovery movement. And he gave a very intriguing title to his book. He called it Not God, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Kurtz said that way down deep, Every alcoholic's problem, and I'd say it even goes beyond alcoholics, it would go to, you know, many, every one of us's problem, is that we've been claiming that we have godlike powers, especially the power to control or the power to change. And he said that recovery, healing, sanity begins with the single realization that I am not God, that I am not God. The writer Anne Lamott, and I love this. I read this the first time. I just want to read it again today. She says this, the biggest difference between you and God is God doesn't think he's you. Okay? You got that? Everybody got it? Okay. So I want to begin this morning by asking you just to declare this truth with me out loud. So I'm going to ask you to do it, to turn to your neighbor and say your name. Say, I am Joe Smith, and I'm not God. Go ahead and do that, okay? Oh, my word. Some of you, even you're sitting next to your spouse, and you've been waiting all your life (laughs) to hear that affirmation in some way, okay? See, Daniel 4 is about coming to the understanding that we are not God. It shows us how to deal with toxic pride, and it shows us how to move toward humility. So let's just begin. We're going to read the first five verses uh, in Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. So just want to pause a moment. So Daniel chapter 4 is really Nebuchadnezzar writing the story, okay? You want to get that straight? Nebuchadnezzar's writing like we do my stories here and we ask a person to write their story and then we edit it and help them to know how to deliver it and then to deliver it. Well, that's kind of what happened here. Nebuchadnezzar telling it, writing his my story. Daniel took it, edited it, and it put it in his book because it was key to what it was he was going to say. So, and the other thing you need to know is he starts with the end. You know how sometimes you start with a movie and it starts with someone talking about what happened, and then then they come back and say, "Now let me tell you how it got here." Well, that's what it is he's starting with the end here. He says this. I'll start again. King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. Let's just pause there. Comfort and prosperity. Let's just talk a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar's prosperity. He was more than prosperous. You got to know. We talk about the 1% in our country, in our world. There was nobody under Nebuchadnezzar. He was the top. 
He was the richest man in the world at this point. He built the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon, 100 years later, was talked about by historian Herodotus, and he talks about it 100 years later as still being the most beautiful city in the world. Nebuchadnezzar had all the wealth that he could imagine, and he dreamed up all kinds of ways to spend his money. And one of the ways he chose to do it is he wanted to give a gift to his wife to show her how much he loved her. And so he built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Anybody ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? One of the seven wonders of the world. One of the seven wonders of the world. He went to no expense to show his beautiful bride how much he loved her because he could. Not only that, but the city had huge walls around it. It had exterior walls. It had internal walls. There's some discrepancy about how, how big the city actually was, the circumference. But let's just say 20 to 30 miles in circumference this city was. And that the exterior wall was wide enough that you could get a chariot with four horses wide and race around the top of the wall just to show how he studly he was as he did. You know, he built this so everybody knew he was the best. Now, here's a picture. I want to show you a picture of one of the gates. This is actually in a museum in Britain, and it shows one of the gates into, into his walls. It was uh, excavated, and then you show how opulent it is. It's painted. It has all kinds of designs on the wall so that people could see his Opulence. He had a way of uh, marking his territory. Uh, and uh, the way he marked his territory is he put an inscription on the corner of every gate and every building to talk about how great he was. And so there's about 126 of these tablets have been found. Let's show the next one. Tablets like this. And every one of them are an inscription where, that was taken from the building. He wanted to preserve the inscription so everybody could have them in history. And there's 126 of these have been found that where he's marked his territory all over his kingdom in that place. He had built one of the seven wonders of the world. He was legendary. He was creative. He was the greatest. His army was the greatest. His city was the greatest. He was living in opulence. And then something happens. He had a dream. Let's go on to verse 5. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in bed. You remember in chapter two, Pastor Mark talked about a dream. This is another time he's having a different dream. And so he wants interpretation. None of his people, just like the last time, could interpret it. And so he calls for Daniel, Bethel Shazar, to come in to interpret his dream. And I just want to read the dream to you, okay? Read the dream. Here it is. Daniel chapter four, verse 10. While I was lying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves, and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from this tree. Then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. The messenger shouted, cut down the tree and lop off its branches. Shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field for seven periods of time. 
Let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the Holy One, so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. So that's the dream. And he asked Daniel to come in and interpret it for him. And Daniel does that. And the interpretation is, you know, Daniel always seemed to be the guy that had to come in and give the bad news. So this is a bad news moment, okay? You be the king. You be the tree king. And so you're the one that's going to be cut down. And he talks about what's going to happen, that he's going to spend seven years as a wild maniac walking around in the fields, eating like a cow. And that he will be ridiculed and he will lose everything and he will be actually humiliated. Now, I don't know if you're like me. If you're like me, you would love to get humility without humiliation, right? But it often takes humiliation to get there. And so he's going to walk through humiliation here in this place. So what I want to do is I want to use Nebuchadnezzar now as a case study. So we're going to use him as a case study by looking at some of the signs of uh, the arrogant pride that he had, and we're going to apply it to our lives. So based upon Nebuchadnezzar's life, here are some signs of, of, being, of arrogant pride. And so I'm going to put it in the, the I for personal so that you can personalize yourself today. I have arrogant pride when I don't recognize the sin in me, when I don't recognize the sin in me. Basically, arrogant people think they're better than they are. They don't believe they have sin. Other people have sin. Other people have issues. Other people have problems, but they don't. That's an arrogant person. And this was Nebuchadnezzar's greatest problem. He saw himself as better than everyone else. He, saw him, he was the one who determined what was right and wrong. And so he determined that he was always right and that other people were wrong. It's kind of similar to our culture today. Current American thought centers around this philosophy that we're all okay, right? We're all okay. It teaches that the only view of me that matters is the view of me that I have of myself. The view of me that I have of myself. We want everyone in our culture to have high self-esteem. And when I have high self-esteem, I see myself as good, no matter what anybody else thinks or no matter what anyone else would say about me. I am my own authority on how I'm doing. If I believe I'm okay, then I'm okay. Okay, that's the way it seems to work. And the result of that thinking then is that there is no moral standard by which people can be assessed, judged, or held accountable to. Pride is not able to recognize sin. So that's the first thing you need to think about in your life today. How are you at recognizing your own sin? It's easy to recognize the sin in others, but your own sin. Second sign of arrogant pride is that I don't appreciate the contribution of others. I don't appreciate what others do. So sometime this week, go back and read Daniel 4, and every time you see I, me, my, mine, just circle that or underline it, and you're going to see what Nebuchadnezzar's view of himself his entire kingdom, let's get this, even though it was I, me, my, my, or mine, his entire kingdom was established on the backs and through the deaths of literally tens of thousands of slaves and servants. He didn't do any of this. He didn't do any of this. And yet Nebuchadnezzar somehow believed that he was the one who could make it happen, that he was the center of the universe. This quote will be on your screen. It's Gregory the Great. He says this, Pride makes me think I am the cause of my own achievements and that I deserve my abilities and leads me to despise other people who don't measure up. 
That's what pride does. It makes me think I deserve to be who I am. And that I, des- I, I deserve what I have. And then I despise others because they don't measure up to what I have. Even though what I have, I didn't get on my own. Third, so assess yourself there. How are you doing it, you know, being able to, you know, give credit to others? Third, arrogant pride can be recognized when I don't empathize with the poor and the oppressed. When I don't empathize with the poor and I just added oppressed, there it is, and oppressed. Wow, didn't know it was on the side. So when I don't notice those who are poor, when I don't hold, when, when, so what happens is, is with the poor is I kind of hold myself above them and I walk around as if the poor don't exist. You ever been told never to lock eyes with a homeless person? You've been told that on the streets? You don't want to acknowledge that they exist. That's some of the ways that people come at being able to overlook those who are prideful or, or who are poor um, in, in some way. So you separate yourself and in some way you make others feel less by making yourself feel superior. Now, this happens today in our culture right now. This was the headline this week. It talks about in New York City, the new, a new high-rise that was just approved to be built. And with the new high-rise, of course, you have to be very wealthy in New York City to afford it. But because they have affordable housing laws, they also had to build certain units in the high-rise where people of lower income could live. So you've got the very wealthy and then those other people got to live there in their high rise too, who you know didn't deserve it. And so what they've done is they just listen to this. This is this is crazy. This is our world right now. Said this issue is getting more and more visible, especially for some New York of New York's lower income residents living in buildings that segregate them from their rich neighbors. That's right. So called poor doors or separate entrances for poor people, usually located in the back of the building. Out of view from the upper-class tenants are increasingly common for New York's swanky residential buildings that house the super-rich alongside a handful of low-income people so they can get the tax credits. And they showed pictures of one of these poor doors, and it was out next to the dumpster, okay, in the alley. And that's where your entrance was. And also, they restrict them from even having access to the amenities in the place because you don't deserve it. We got here because we deserve it. You got here because you didn't deserve it in some way. So they're overlooking the poor. Look at what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Right? And that takes us to this next idea is this. Fourth sign of arrogant pride, I don't acknowledge God. I don't acknowledge God. Because I believe I'm God, right? I believe I'm God. And therefore, I relegate God to a place in my worldview. So, yeah, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar believed that in the God of Daniel, but he relegated him to a slice of his worldview, not the center of his worldview. Babylon represents a worldview that says, It's okay to worship your God, just don't let your God impact us. Or don't expect us to listen to what your God says. It's okay, you can have your God, you can have it. You may need that God, but we don't want your God to in any way cause us to have to change the way we live or you to expect it to happen. And so arrogant pride refuses to acknowledge that God is God and we're not and he is in control. He is in control. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, pride 
is claiming to be the author of that which is really a gift. Remember I said, pay attention, the words of that song are going to come back. The author of the oceans gives me grace. Pride is claiming to be the author of that which is really a gift. Now you've seen the headlines this week. They've been talking about Senator John Walsh from Montana. Anybody heard about Senator John Walsh from Montana? Okay, so he, in 2007, published a document, and in that document, it listed, it was about this, the case for democracy as, long, as a long-term national strategy, and the entire document was lifted from another source and placed in as if he had done it. He plagiarized the entire thing, including the six steps that would lead us to a democracy in our land. See, pride, if you think about it in this way, pride is an example of the of the ultimate example of plagiarism, of plagiarism. It's claiming to be the author of my own life. It takes credit for being the author when God is the author of all things. Humility, on the other hand, is the opposite. It says, he did it. God did it. And I'm going to surrender to him. Now, we looked at this verse a few weeks ago when I started the series, but I would just come back to it today. This shows the philosophy that was in Babylon, but it's also the philosophy of the metaphor of Babylon that we're using in this series. And it says this, hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. In Exodus, what does it say that God identifies himself as? I am. So we're competing philosophies on who is really I am, who is really God. Now, why is it important for us to deal with this? I mean, can't we just go on? Well, if you want to please the God of the Bible, okay, I'll just say that. Now, you can go on, and if if you want to just put the God of the Bible as a slice of your life, and he's not going to be the center of your life, you really don't need what I'm talking about today. You don't need it. But if you want to put God at the center of your life, the only way you can do it is by what I'm talking about today. In fact, look at what it says in James. It says this, God opposes the proud. Now, you see, here's the deal. If you don't want to do what I'm talking about today, guess what side you're on? God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. Now, I didn't put these verses. You might write them down. Proverbs 8, 13, it says that God hates pride. Proverbs 20, I mean, 15, 25, it says that God attacks pride. He doesn't just hate it, he attacks it. And that's what happened in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. This is serious stuff. God opposes, stands against, mocks those with arrogant pride. And so the question we would ask today, and I'm telling you, I struggle with this. What are the steps I can take to move from arrogant pride to humility? What can I do that? Well, Daniel talks about this. And basically, as Daniel interpreted his dream, he comes back he, uh, at the end of the interpretation of the dream, after he said, you are the king, and this is all that's going to happen to you. He says this, um, and um, I didn't put verse 26 on your notes. You're on the backside right now, verse 26 and 27, we're going to look at, but I didn't put 26 there. I wish I would have, but it says this, verse 26. He's at, at the end of the interpretation, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, you will receive your kingdom back again when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So there's a catch there, when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Then he says what I've got there, verse 27. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. Unfortunately for Nebuchadnezzar, fortunately for us, honest, fortunately for us, Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen to the warning. He didn't listen to the warning. 
And so what I want to do is I want to talk about had Nebuchadnezzar listened to this word of advice in verse 27, how, what could we do if we chose to listen today that would move us toward humility? So I'm going to give you four ideas that match with the four things we talked about in the front. First thing this, if I'm going to move from arrogant pride, I must admit my sin. I must admit my sin. This is not easy. We're getting to the painful part now. The recognition, the, the front side, that was the easy stuff. Some of you are going, oh my gosh, that was easy. <laughs> this is the hard stuff now. When I'm serious about getting right with God, a painful part is admitting the truth about myself. Admitting the truth about myself. I'm not God. And therefore, I'm also going to agree with his assessment with me. See, here's the deal. Without God's grace, I am not holy. I am sinful in my nature, and I'm sinful in my actions. But with God's grace, he takes a morally bankrupt person, and he changes that, as we looked at last week, into a deeply loved son or daughter of the God Most High, the Beloved. That's what God does when we are willing to admit to him that we've sinned. Look at David's words when he was admitting his transgression in, with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah. He says, the, service you want is a broken, the sacrifice you want is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. So it's not just admitting, it's repenting. It's renouncing, it's turning away from, it's saying, I admit that I've sinned, and now, God, I'm telling you, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to change my behavior because you have changed my heart. It begins with him changing your heart. It begins with grace. I love this quote from Tim Keller. It's so picturesque. He says this, the more you see your own flaws and sins... Then the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you because you know you need it and you know that you wouldn't be anything without him. Okay, so that's the first thing I have to do, admit my sin. Second is this. I need to learn to value the contribution of others. I need to learn to value the contribution of others. If you guys listen to what I'm talking about today in your workplace, you'll become the employee of the year this year. Okay? You'll become the mom of the year or the dad of the year. If you just listen to this next part, okay? Value the contribution of others. So here's the deal. He had the dream. Daniel interpreted the dream. Daniel goes away. Nebuchadnezzar has the warning, and Nebuchadnezzar has the formula or the ways that he can change, and then God will not cause his dream to happen. He doesn't do it. 12 months later, he's walking along on his walls, looking around his kingdom, and this is what he says in verse 30. As Nebuchadnezzar looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display what? My majestic splendor. Wow, this guy is stuck on himself. But nobody else was part of this. It's by my own mighty power. See, folks, contrary to 
cultural mythology. There is no self-made man or woman. There's no self-made man or woman. Everybody had somebody strengthening them or someone in your, that was on your side or someone who was speaking words of favor into you for you to be able to get where you are. It takes humility to value the contribution of others. Now, I saw two examples this week because my, my antenna have just been way out on this whole pride, humility thing this week. And so I saw two examples this week, and I'm going to share both of them with you today. Uh, one was the recent Medal of Honor ceremony on Monday uh, in the White House of uh, Staff Sergeant Ryan Pitts. So let's watch this. Six summers ago, 200 Taliban militants rained fire on a U.S. outpost in Afghanistan. And during the fight, nine American soldiers were killed. But one former Staff Sergeant Ryan Pitts single-handedly held off the enemy. President Obama awarded Pitts the Medal of Honor on Monday. And David Martin sat down with the ninth living recipient of that award for the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Take it away. Ryan Pitts was one of the soldiers building a sandbagged observation post overlooking a larger base set up in the village of Wanat in July of 2008. President Obama described what happened next. Insurgents broke through the wire, and that little post was on the verge of falling, giving the enemy a perch from which to devastate the base below. Against that onslaught, one American held the line. Pitts was that one American, although he doesn't see it that way. Nine guys died so the rest of us could come home. And valor was everywhere. Everybody was fighting as hard as they could. And I don't think anybody, you know, no man fought harder than any other. So at the press conference, after he had received the Medal of Honor, the first thing that he did is he went out to the stage with all the press there and he read the nine names of the men who had died because this is what he says. He says, this medal is ours, not mine. It belongs to them and their loved ones as much as it belongs to me. Those guys saved my life and a lot of other people's lives that day. For me, it's an individual reward for a collective effort. And then there was another interview, and he's holding his son. This happens, this, this whole incident we saw there happened seven years ago. Since then, he's gotten married, and he has a little, like, looks like about a, you know, one-year-old or under child. And he's holding his son, and he says this. When it comes time to tell him, my son, about that day, I'm going to make sure he knows that I'm alive, and he's here because of a, what a lot of other men did. See, he valued the contributions of his fellow soldiers. He's a humble man. Second story that I was reflecting on comes from the most recent NBA MVP awards. When Kevin Durant received the MVP, uh, and he's elected by all the you know, sports writers as being the most valuable player in the NBA. And I just want you to see how he responded when he received the reward that day. Please welcome the 2013-14 Kia NBA Most Valuable Player, Kevin Durant. Wow. Wow. Thank, thank you guys so much. Uh, I'm usually good at, uh, at talking, but uh, I'm a little nervous today. First off, I'd like to thank God for changing my life 
and let me really realize what life is all about. Basketball is just a platform in order for me to inspire people. And I realized that. And, and last, my mom. I don't think you know what you did. You had my brother when you were 18 years old. Three years later, I came out. We were stacked, the odds were stacked against us. Single parent with two boys by the time you were 21 years old. Everybody told us we weren't supposed to be here. We moved from apartment to apartment by ourselves. One of the best memories I had is when we moved into our, our first apartment. No, no bed, no furniture, and we just all sat in, in the living room and just hugged each other. Because that's what we, we thought we made it. And when, you, when something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. And you wake me up in the middle of the night in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sideline of my games at eight or nine years old. We wasn't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street. You put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. You the real MVP. that whole speech is 26 minutes well worth your time he thanked everybody everybody who contributed to him being on that stage at that day you know what if you would choose today to say that's going to be my goal in life is just to make sure that those who helped me get where I am today those who helped me have what I have at this moment those who helped me in this moment felt valued by you, that they are your MVP, that'd be a huge step to humility. And imagine how blessed our world would be if we did that as well. Okay, next is this. So I'm going to take steps towards humility. I'm going to show mercy to the poor. I'm going to show mercy to the poor. Whew, this is getting harder. And I know that God wants to work in uh, all of us today. My wife, Kimberly, and Jordan, my daughter, uh, they went to an inner city missions experience this week. And um, we got to reflect on it last night as to what it was like about where they were and they were dealing with. You know, drugged people, homeless people, down and out people, girls coming out of what they called the life. And uh, 
And so as she was talking to me, I was just, uh, just so blown away by uh, how easy it is to overlook the poor uh, for me, to just kind of say, I got my stuff to do, and I know they're over there, and somebody else is going to take care of them, and that kind of thing. And she told me that the one thing she learned this weekend from the staff that helped them uh, in this ministry is this, is that people who are down and out just want someone to notice them. They want to know that they're seen. They want to know that they're a human being. Because you know what, folks? I'll just say this. Except for the grace of God, any one of us could be on the streets today. We didn't choose who we were born to. We didn't choose the gifts we got. We didn't choose the time we were born into. We didn't choose the, uh, the stuff that was hand-fed to us, given to us. It was just God's favor and his grace. So we can't look down on someone, and this is what we do. We look down on somebody and say, well, I got where I did by my work. Who gave you your abilities and your opportunities? Many people don't get those. And he calls us to, to serve the poor. And pride makes you look at people differently. Humility sees people as just like you. Just like you in many ways. Look at these verses. Let's let them soak into your heart. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out of the darkness. And the darkness around you will be bright as noon. Micah 6. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, I want to help today a little bit. Our church, you don't have to go to the inner city like Kim did last week. And uh, you don't have to do that in order to be able to help those who are poor or oppressed. Our church has established partnerships. This is one of the things we do. We establish partnerships with groups in our local community. You know, right in our local community, there are huge needs. And this flyer, it's available at the reach table. But also, I, don't, I know we don't have a lot of these today. I uh, went out and looked before the service. But every one of the ministries that we have a, a partnership with, they do. They all have flyers. There's racks of flyers that you can look at. And you can say, I'd like to be involved with interfaith food ministry. I'd like to be involved in going to the nursing homes. Helping the forgotten. I'd be involved, I'd like to be involved in helping people who uh, are in dire straits and they need meals or need work on their home or they need car repair, they need drive, a ride somewhere. Or you know what, I'm going to make sure that every time our church does a food drive, I'm not coming without a bag. And I'd like to be on that benevolence team and they help people that really are hurting to, to be able to find a, you know, get some money to be able to maybe bridge that gap. I like to be involved with our single moms ministry. We are helping those single moms. And uh, you know what? Unless you've been a single mom, you have no idea the desperation that's felt. I like to be involved with Courage House. Courage House is one of our newest ministries that we're teaming up with. And in November, we're actually going to have an introduction uh, to Courage House that you can attend and you can come and find out what it is. But it's really helping girls come out of the life, sex trafficking. Uh, Safe Families, where we take 
you know, families that their kids are and them are in dire straits with each other and that they need just kind of a, a little season where they can have the stress relieved and we take their kids so that they won't abuse them and they won't hurt them in some way or so they can breathe again. Crisis Care Crisis Nursery takes the youngest and we help with them as well. Hospitality House, at-risk youth, Living Well Medical Clinic, A New Day, helps people that are down and out and needing to know that someone cares. Our jail ministry, can you imagine going into the jails and helping people who really feel that that's their only life? That isn't all. That's just some of the ministry partners that you could choose to be part of. And I just want to say some of us need to humble ourselves and just go where we're not comfortable and get involved. Just get involved. All right, last idea is this. If I'm going to take steps towards humility, the first step I have to take is the one Nebuchadnezzar took. I must look up to God. I must look up to God. In order to receive God's blessings in our lives, we must be willing to look up and say, heaven rules. Heaven rules. You are God and I'm not. Look at Daniel 4. This is the end of, as Nebuchadnezzar is talking about, the end of his seven years of insanity. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. He's saying, I lifted my eyes off of myself and I put my eyes on God, the maker of the heavens who knows my name, the author of the oceans who gives me grace. He's God and I'm not. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not God. And I'll just say this, folks. God will always respond to a heart that turns to him. And when Nebuchadnezzar's heart changed, his song changed. And look at verse 37. This is now his song. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. He is able to humble. Wouldn't it be nice to choose an easier way than humiliation? To choose to take the steps ourselves in that direction. Even in God's judgment, God also had grace. And Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. Remember, we read that. The dream showed that the tree would be cut down and that God said, the messenger from heaven said, that leave the stump. Build an iron fence around the stump so that it will be protected. Plant green, luscious grass around the fence. And the picture is that there's always an opportunity, even in God's judgment, for someone to turn their eyes to him and be restored and be restored. Let's pray together. I'm going to lead us in a prayer now. Wow, I, I just ask God that you would just continue right now to do your work in us. And God, we want to confess today that we're not God. We're not infinite. We're not holy. 
We're sinners. And we lift our eyes up to you, the king of all, the king of glory, the author and the maker of everything. We declare today that heaven rules. And today we come before you and we just want to let you know that we, rec- we want to receive today your love and forgiveness as a gift of grace. Lord, this wasn't meant today to make us feel bad about things we've done. It was meant today to change the things we do. To change not only the things we do, but the heart through which we do them. And so God, I pray today that every one of us in this room, that we would be open to acknowledging our sin, confessing it to you, that we would value the contribution of others before the contribution of ourselves. God, I pray that you would help us to show mercy to the poor and the oppressed. And Lord, I pray that every day, every moment, there would be an opportunity where we look up to you, we thank you for what you've done, who you are, and that we are your beloved. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.